Well, thank you, Ralph. I will say to begin, my apologies for my shirt. Uh, having had a child this week, just really slipped my mind on being able to sit out close. So I just grabbed the first thing in my closet. Got here, happens to be a chief shirt. I know it's just so. Hopefully, that's not a stumbling block for any of you cowboy fans out there. But uh, now that I've thoroughly lost half of you. It is a joy to gather together, isn't it? My God is faithful. He is so good. As we work through this book of 2 Peter, we're reminded, actually two weeks ago, as Pastor Stephen walked us through ending chapter 1, we're reminded of the steadfast faithfulness of the Lord, the truth of His Word, that we can actually build our lives according to the foundation of God's Word. For God is faithful, and God is holy and righteous and perfect. And he has spoken to us sufficiently through the prophets and apostles. These men that First Peter chapter 1, the end tells us that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so as believers in Christ, we've received this salvation. As, as Peter begins us in 2 Peter chapter 1, we receive this salvation of, of assured and same standing of that of the apostles by faith in Christ. We've received a righteousness. And so we're right with God. We're made and declared holy and, and acceptable before God. Those sinners were made forgiven and made as saints before God, made holy and acceptable. Our worship is pleasing to God as we worship Him in spirit and truth, this gift that we have in the Lord. And, and so we stand affirmed and, and firmly upon God's Word. We minister God's Word to each other in local church communities and as we go through our lives. But in this time, as we looked last week, false teachers were told, false prophets, false teachers uh, had come, as we look through the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and were coming and will come in a future tense. They will continually bombard the congregations, the people of God, longing to lead many astray. As we look at our text this morning, there becomes this, I want to put our minds in this scene for a moment. Imagine, if you will, that a number of your fellow church members, a number of your maybe unbiological family, became seduced by false teaching. They bought down on those lures of taught sensuality and following the crowd of the many and greed, and they followed off the false teachers. And they left the congregation. And, and in following off with these false teachers, there's a sense of burden for those who have now forsaken the gospel and an, a sense of righteous anger that it seems like these false teachers that came in made a profession of faith, seemed to be authentic, but in a matter of time, their philosophy that they must increase, Jesus must decrease, took over. They gained a, a multitude, and then they left town. And it seems like they're going to get away with it. Here, the Word of God ministers to us like a double-edged sword, this central big idea we look at this morning. That the Scriptures function, as Peter uses them, like a double-edged sword, both rekindling our love for the Lord and trustworthiness for the Lord. For he gives them three examples from the Old Testament Scriptures to show us through history that, that God is certainly aware of, of wickedness. Wickedness that, as Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, speaks of in the sense of love. That we're aware of the, the height and width and, and depth and breadth of God's love. The love of Christ for us. Now in 2 Peter, in these words that were read a moment ago that we're going to look at, verse 3 through 10, we get a picture of God's righteous judgment as well. The height and depth and breadth of God's righteous judgment. And so the believers are comforted to remember all wicked doers will give an account before God. 
His timing may not match up with what we perceive ought to be the timing, but His timing is always perfect and sure. And so those who led away many in wickedness, they'll be held accountable before the righteous judge. Even death, as we saw in 1 Peter, cannot hide one from the judgment of God. And so the believers can be comforted, but also in a sense like righteous lot that we learned this morning. We ought to be troubled. Our hearts ought to be grieved for the lost, knowing that their sure fate, if they do not come to Christ, is a just, righteous, and holy God who will not wink or tip His cap to sin or look the other way. So, Scripture, like a two-edged sword, it rekindles our trust in God and redirects us from future wickedness. Just as we see judgment that's going to come to one, it causes us likewise, if we were tempted to follow along with the many and leave the fellowship of the saints, to abandon the the sure message of the gospel, the good news in Christ, that Jesus, that God so loved the world, the Father would send the Son, the Son would take on flesh and dwell among us, fully God, fully man, that Jesus would love God and love neighbor perfectly, fulfilling all the demands of the law, that He would live the sinless, righteous life, securing all those the Father had given them, that all who believe upon Christ will find a Savior, forgiveness of sins, an abundant and eternal life. That Jesus laid His life on the cross as an exchange. Our sins nailed to His body on the tree. To all who believe upon Christ, we have forgiveness and we know the grace and mercy of God. The, the mercy of God, the judgment that should be placed upon every one of us as rebellious sinners was placed upon Jesus Christ upon the cross in the righteous life that Jesus lived in heart and in deed was placed upon our accounts as believers. So we're made holy and acceptable before God. Jesus defeated death and rose again from the grave, ministered, and 40 days later ascended to, the, to heaven to the right hand of the Father. He intercedes for us today as believers. And He will come again one day in judgment. He will make, in time, all things final and right. And it's this good news that we're rekindled in and remembering that God is faithful. His Word is trustworthy and true. It's worth our life to be and make followers of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. This is our aim no matter how many days or years He gives to us left. That's the good news that we have. That this true news of hope and grace and joy is ours in Christ. And so like somebody that attends a a wedding, if you've been married for some time and you've attended a wedding and perhaps you've become a little stale toward one another, when you attend that wedding, it causes you to stop for a moment and think about your own vows, doesn't it? it can bring you to a point of rekindling and remembering the the commitments that you made to each other to pursue one another, to be pursued by one another, to serve one another, for for the groom to reflect Christ in the church, to lay his life down for his bride, and the bride likewise to to learn along in this way to be submissive as the church to Christ, serving one another, living on mission together for God's glory, rekindles your passion, your commitment. That's what we see here in our text this morning. We pray, God, would you rekindle our joy and hope and love for Christ and the trustworthiness of your word. And at the same time, would you prevent us from future wickedness? Help us to see where those lures that we looked at last week, remember, of sensuality, self-lordship, the lure of popularity. We looked at the lure of greed. Today is a reminder of where that fishing pole goes. 
So, so last week we looked at the danger of the lure and, and the characteristics of the false teachers. Today we look at where does that lure ultimately get pulled? It gets pulled to judgment and wickedness or, uh, of the wicked. So let's look at the first component as we unpack this central idea this morning, three components of this. Now we want to remember that the wicked deeds from long ago, God is righteous and will make all things right. And God is righteous and He will make how many things right? All things right. No matter how long ago it occurred, God will make all things right. All things right. Not just the things where the gospel message has been preached. Not just in Israel. He will make all things right because He is the God over all the nations. Now, last week I referenced two statements, two results from the survey given in that Ligonier study. Remember that? They were kind of disheartening. Well, today's Good news. It's not good news. Actually, it's bad news. It gets worse. So I'm going to give you one of the statements. This was a survey done. Ligonier does this state of theology survey every two years. And one of the results that came from this, we're going to share with you today. And they asked 3,000 Americans or evangelical Christians and evangelical Christians. Two are not the same, right? So uh, in asking, and they could respond to this statement, I strongly agree with it, you know, agree, neutral, don't know, uh, disagree, strongly disagree. Listen to how the evangelicals of today, 2020, responded to this statement. Here's the statement. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam today. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. What percent would you say of evangelical Christians today said they agree with that statement, that God accepts the worship from all religions? 42% of evangelical Christians agreed with that statement. 42%. Jesus Christ did not come to be a way. And Jesus Christ did not come because the the worship of the pagan nations of, of fallen humanity is pleasing to Him. It is only by Christ He came, the Father so loved us because Jesus is the only way. Only by hope in the Son of God do we have life and forgiveness. The blood of bulls and goats does not take away sin. Psalm 96.5 says all the gods of the nations are idols. Are idols. Now in your mind you might think, but what about this? All the gods of the nations are idols. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, a text that we read most every time that we partake of the Lord's Supper, the last Sunday of the month together. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul refers to the sacrifices that are taking place. And he refers to the pagans there, and he says that they are worshiping, they are making sacrifices, not simply to idols, but to demons that are influencing the idols. They're worshiping demons. There is one hope. It's in Jesus Christ. This is why this is true. Listen, this is what we see here. When it's downplayed, when sin is downplayed, by default, when our, when, our, when our significance is increased and our sin in this way is, is decreased, we need a smaller Savior. We need Jesus who is a buffet of possible acceptable doors, a possibility of acceptable God. But He's not. He is the only way. He is the only hope. And we can see, if we didn't believe in that, why would you give, if Jesus is one of infinite ways or dozens of ways to heaven, why would you give your life to disciple-making, following Jesus? 
Why would you give your life to persuading others to come and to know the hope and truth in Christ when He's simply one in a buffet of truths? The wicked deeds from long ago. God will hold all accountable. All. And the first example we see here in these first few verses is that of even this specific group of fallen angels. I want you to look over to the book of Jude. It's only a few pages behind 2 Peter. That God is righteous. There's only one God, the triune God. The one who created you and sustained you and gives you and me breath in our lungs right now in this moment. And we look over to to Jude and we look at verses 5-7. through There's only one chapter of Jude. And it's, we've referred to it already as a sister book. A lot of similarities in these two books. But there's not multiple gods over the angels or the nations or the world or creation. It's only one God. And we won't read the account, but you can read it in Genesis chapter 6. It's alluded to here in Jude of this first case example. That there was, and Pastor John, our children's pastor, he preached on this when he went through 1 Peter chapter 3. That's another allusion to this text. And there's a number of angels... So God created angels. Satan, one of the first of those created. And a number of those angels, perhaps a third fell, and those are demons. But a number of those that fell, they left their domain of of relations and authority. And a number of them somehow had relations with women. And it was so wicked that God bound them for judgment until the day of final judgment. So Satan and the rest of the demons are allowed a level of permission and influence. They do the evil deeds they desire to do. God permits them. They're not free range. But a number of demons did what was so wicked in leaving their bounds that God had bound them, has bound them for eternity. And it's a reminder, listen, of the exclusivity of God. Not a God, the triune God. The triune God who loves us so much that He would send us hope while we were yet sinners, Christ would come and die for us. Listen to this in Jude chapter 5-7. through 7, We'll see a similarities to our text this morning. Verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward, Jesus who did this, I remember Pastor Stephen referring to Jesus' role in creation earlier, the, the Son, before He took on flesh, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This to us is a reminder that for if God did not spare the angels because of their wickedness, believer, that no matter how long ago the wickedness occurred, God has not forgotten. So as believers, listen, this ministers to us in in a number of specific ways. One specific way that I don't know how the Lord is going to bring this to your mind or how this applies to you, but it's important, I think, to remember that whatever sin has happened to you, the Lord has not forgotten it. That the sinner, the one that committed the act of wickedness against you, whatever the abuse or whatever the taking advantage of, 
that one will give an account to God. He is intimately aware. And we can see how this truth ministers to the church in the first century. Remember what we talked about in 1 Peter? That they were being insulted. They were, they were being mocked publicly. Soon, the emperor Domitian would bring physical persecution upon them because of their commitment to Christ. And this is a reminder that even when they look back at the greatest of sins possible, God has not forgotten and He will hold them accountable. This to us is good news. It ministers to us that God is faithful and He has not forgotten about that thing that comes into our mind. There's one hope. Jesus. Have you turned and trusted in Him alone? To the unbeliever, listen, this is a call of repentance and hope for you're still alive. And the Lord has been graciously sustaining your every breath in your constant rebellion and sin. You're adding to the wrath of God that John chapter 3, verse 30 tells us rests upon you today. This is not a scare tactic. This is not fire and brimstone. Though we read in this text the fire and brimstone that falls on Sodom and Gomorrah, this is a reality We do not cheapen the reality of our sin because it cheapens the true reality of what Jesus Christ has rescued us from. We are more broken and selfish than we'll ever understand. He's restrained the amount of evil we could ever hope to do in our fallenness. But God being rich in mercy. If today you will trust Christ, you have assured hope You can know the true love of God in Christ. You can stand confidently before your God and cry out to Him. Not a God, but the God who made you and loves you and cares for you and died for you, purchased you at a price, the price of the Son, who took on flesh and dwelt among us, never ceasing to be God. Isn't that beautiful? Take heart, believer. Take encouragement. Be reminded and rekindled today. That even the wicked deeds from long ago, God is righteous and will make all things right no matter how long ago it is. And so we want to say with this understanding, time does not cover over sin, does it? Time doesn't cover over sin. It makes us forget. The anger and emotions start to decrease oftentimes, but but it doesn't make it right. But in Christ Jesus, believer, He has made you righteous. That's how great our God is. Is He worthy of our praise? He's worthy of our praise. Let's go on to verse 5. We want to be in this way, rekindled in our love for God and the trustworthiness of His Word, but we also want to be reassured this morning. We're reassured that when the wicked seem to be dominating the way of the world, God is righteous. We'll make it right. So remember we referenced that Ephesians 3 text, the height and breadth and depth of the love of God. So too, he gives us the first example, is the furthest example, one of the furthest examples back of rebellion and severity of rebellion. Of these angels that left their place of domain, judgment came upon them. And they're bound today. They're still, they're bound literally this day, whatever dimension or however that looks, those angels, those literal angels, are bound for judgment. And the depths of the depths. And they will not be come up from it until. Jesus Christ casts them into the eternal lake of fire that He prepared for Satan and his demons. Revelation tells us, and also sinners who stand by their own accord. 
And now we come to this example of Noah in verse 5. When the world seems totally chaotic and hopeless and lost, we're told, and you can read the account in Genesis chapter 6, that the world was continually wicked in their hearts, continual wickedness. It says that the Lord looked down and, and saw corruption. Their, their sinfulness and their wicked hearts, it, it creatively thought of ways of corruption. And God judged them. He held them accountable. Look what He says in verse 5. If He did not spare the ancient world... Now, judgment didn't come the second that the world sinned, did it? Of course not. Of course not. But there was enough influence in time for all the world and enough mercy of God to, to withhold judgment until the whole world in this way was corrupted in Noah's day. But if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, how was Noah described? A herald, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. That's always been one of the most unique things to me, that we will draw the flood scene, Noah's Ark, with kids. My kids love Noah's Ark. They got a, Noah's, they got a little ark in our house, and we tell them the story. I mean, we don't get too graphic, but it, we tell it as a story of judgment upon the earth, right? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a judgment upon the entire world. Everyone is, that's their last day on earth, except for those who come into the ark. Certainly for some time they would see the ark being built, and yet their hearts increasingly hardened against it. Noah, this preacher, proclaimer of righteousness. But only seven are saved and come into the ark. And the waters of wrath and judgment come and they judge the entire wickedness, the wicked ones of all the world. There was only one ark and one hope. And as believers today, how many arks are there? There is but one ark, one hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us come in to Him. Let us proclaim Him and rest in Him. And let us joyfully be proclaimers of righteousness. Might does not make right. Majority does not make morality. It is God's worldview that determines. It's the truth. The law reflects the very nature and character of God. And God in His kindness, He shows judgment. Preserving, He says, Noah. Preserving Noah. What a word of encouragement to the church in the first century world that is such a minority of influence that God is faithful. Trust in Him. Proclaim righteousness in Christ. No matter what the world does. Because there is a judge. And they will stand before Him. And so would you, but by the grace of your Savior, Jesus Christ. By the love abounding of God. And so become a proclaimer of righteousness. The righteousness received through Christ. Isn't this good news? This encourages, this, this builds the church's hope and, and, and faith and trust in the Lord by going to what? By going to historical examples in Scripture. This gives us a, a multitude of applications that we could spend time in this morning. Among them is the reality that whether it's Noah and the seven, that's not a very big church. 
or whether it's a congregation in the first century that has just seen many of them abandon Christ, chasing sensuality. As the church of whatever the size was, it doesn't tell us, but it's severely decreased. The importance of the church to function as family cannot be stressed enough as we look at this text. To function as family. When I say function as family, I don't mean like function like second cousins. You know what I mean? Like where you're going to the reunion, you're like, okay, what's their name again? And you're trying to remember writing down their name on the way. But we're to function in a way of practicing hospitality. So when we speak of word worship service family, be to a group, get involved with a group that people can look across the room well enough that they can hold you accountable to, to walk out the word together in love. It's a time of celebration. So whether it's a group, a women's group, a, a men's huddle, whatever it is, be devoted to the word with a group. Let corporate worship, as you have this morning, let this be the first stone in your schedule. To say, I don't know what we're doing, but I know we're going to be at church on Sunday. And the rest will fall around that. This is vital to gather together with the people of God, to sing His praises, to sit under His word. Service, live a life of service, find somewhere to serve. But we don't want you to have 15 things at, at church a week with the gathering here on this campus. We don't want that. We want you to be free enough to function as family. That's, in a word, that's hospitality. Spend time having people over for meals. Spend time investing in one another. So you realize just in three years, if you had, let's say you sign up for the Adopted Jack ministry, you're going to, by default, get three meals uh, a semester with, a, with a, one of our college students. That's a great thing. They're not free meals. You're going to pay for them and have the college student over. So it's not that great, but it's still great. It's free for the college student. If they tell you you have to pay as a college student that signs up, they have just pulled one over on you, okay? So you have the adopted jack component. But if you're part of a small group too, you probably have a dozen, 15 other or so people that you're going to be able to spend time in the Lord sharpening. But if you're just practicing hospitality and say, you know what, I want to have at least one, one other church member, one other person I see on Sunday, I want to have them over for, for, for dinner just once a month. In three years, you'll have like 70 people that you've built a connection with to help hold you accountable in your life. To, to walk in a commitment in the Word of God, to function as family. So even when the world seems to often lose its mind, the body of Christ is gifted by God to function as family together, even if it's only the seven that enter into the ark. So let's look third. As we talk about the judgment of God and the faithfulness and the love of God, often in our mind comes a, a question that may enter into your mind, and perhaps it already has this morning. But what about? But what about? Perhaps it's something you've experienced. Someone has sinned against you. Or an injustice that you've experienced in life. A betrayal. And your mind says, but what about this situation? We're reminded in verses 6-10 through 10 that the righteous and sovereign Lord, He knows these things. He knows. He knows and He is righteous and sovereign. It reminds us of who the Lord is. That's who we look to. Our comfort isn't knowing how all the exact plans are going to unfold. Our comfort is in knowing the Lord who is sovereign and faithful and good and just. He cares for us. And the Lord not coming and acting right away does not mean He didn't care. So even though the Lord allowed all the cities to be able to build up across the world enough of wickedness before He would give Noah the ark, it didn't mean he didn't care. 
And now as we look at the text of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19, you can write down that reference, Genesis 18 and 19. Even though the Lord was so patient that He allowed Sodom and Gomorrah, these twin cities, to build such an influence that it captivated the heart of even righteous people that longed to linger near it. His slowness to bring His ultimate and perfect judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah did not mean He didn't care. That's important for us to remember. So whatever that component is in your life, in your heart, you look to verse 9 of this text, then the Lord knows how to rescue. If the Lord knows how to rescue, what's that tell us? It means the Lord knows the depths of our circumstances. So all across the world and all through the centuries, we know a lot about church history and different seasons of suffering, but we only know, I mean, the tip of the iceberg of how much pain and and, and abuse and and heartache has been all through the centuries toward believers because their commitment to Christ. And yet the Lord knows. And He knows how to rescue and deliver them at the right time. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to what? To keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. This text functions in two ways for us. Number one, it functions for the believer to remember that God is faithful even when our eyes looking around may seem otherwise and our heart is breaking. But it also reminds us of the future of those who take the bait and run after it and chase a different gospel. And it sobers us up to realize, I need to stop looking at that bait. (laughs) I don't want to go there. Christ's way is better than anything that the world or temptation may have to claim to offer. His way is always better. So you think about the scene in, in, in Genesis, in Genesis 18, 19. In Sodom and Gomorrah, Ezekiel tells us they have a sin of inhospitality and, and of course, the sexual perversion and all these other sins that, that they have. It's not like they just have one issue, okay? So make that clear. There are lots of problems going on here. But it's such an influential city that Lot wants to be close to it. And Abraham comes, he knows the judgment of God is good. Why? Because God is faithful. He's faithful to His covenant and His word is trustworthy. And God loves us and cares for us, but He knows He's righteous and holy. And therefore, He must address sin. Because sin is treason. It's missing the mark. It's rebellion against Him. And what happens? Abraham uses his negotiation skills and says, listen, if God, God, if there's just 50 righteous people, will you spare it? And then eventually he works his way down to saying, God, I know you're very patient, you're very merciful toward me, but what if there's just ten? And God sends two angels, and the angels go to the city, and they intend to go down to the brick street, the brick square. And yet Lot knows what's going to happen to him if they go down there. So Lot intercedes. He says, listen, let me bake you some food, bake you some bread, and y'all come over to my house instead on the outskirts them over, but word spreads into Sodom and Gomorrah of these two men, these two angels that have come into the city. And they go and they, they beat against the house. And they demand that the men come out so they can have relations with them. And God, in an act of mercy, the angels blind the men. And He delivers Lot from the judgment. But the people are so depraved 
that even though they're struck with sudden blindness and the terror that must come in, they went from seeing to not seeing, what do they do all night? They grope at the doors. They grope until they are out of strength. If they're clawing at the doors, their fingernails would have been probably ripped off and bloodied. That's how depraved, apart from the grace and mercy of God, they had been given over to their wickedness. And God was going to bring judgment. And so He delivers Lot and Lot's wife, so allured by the ways of the wicked, she turns around and she too dies. But the Lord is faithful to deliver the righteous. He knows the depths of your trials. He knows all things. And He cares intimately and brings hope and life to all who will but come to Christ. What do we learn in Babel and Sodom and Gomorrah? We learn a lot of things. But among we learn men on their own strength, men and women, can build notable cities, but they cannot build noble cities before God. So too in your life and in my life, in my kids' lives, we can build notable lives. But on our own, we cannot build noble lives before God. So as we look at this text, we say, God, search our hearts for the areas where we long on our own to be notable and make a name for ourselves and prune it. Pluck it out, Lord. That we would live simple, noble, quiet, gentle lives as he describes in 1 Peter and in the book of Romans. Help us to live faithful lives, being and making followers of Jesus Christ for your glory until you call us home in whatever way you call us home. And your life, as I ask you that question, notable or noble, is there, is there an area of your life where you find yourself longing for that? I'm going to give you one example. And the irony of me wearing a football shirt giving you this example does not escape me. Notable rather than noble. Parents and grandparents, we can only have... Let me share this first. I've had the privilege of being a part of multi-generational churches my whole life. I know you look at me and you're like, Brent, you can't be more than 20. I know. I know what you're thinking. But I've been around generations for a long time. Parents oftentimes long for their kids to be noble. And it's, and it's good that our kids would be successful in whatever they set their heart to. It's a beautiful thing. When they're successful and blessed, whether it's in business or in academics or music or athletics, that's a great thing. But it's a notable thing. But parents, we, 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 we just glisten with joy when they do notable things. But you know what the prayer request most always is by grandparents? that their kids' hearts would turn toward the Lord. That's their heart's prayer. I can't tell you how many families, when I was in student ministry, how many families, their parents so longed for their kids to be great at sports, we didn't see them for months at a time. Travel ball became the key stone of their weekly schedule. And we didn't see those people for months and months. 
And I'll never forget one time sitting down with a, with a young man that was good enough to go on and play college athletics. But he so wanted to be a part of a mission trip we were going on, but his parents said, no, you cannot. You made a commitment. This is, we're talking like a long season. This travel ball team. You made a commitment to this. You're not going to let him down. And here's this senior in high school was in tears because he felt convicted to obey the Lord and go and be a part of this mission trip. It was an evangelistic mission trip. But his parents said, no, you made a commitment. And I watched those parents live through that boy's success. And then that lack of success, the weight of it crushed that young man when he went to college. And he does not hunger for the Lord in a way that we would say is remarkable or notable today. So we must ever examine our hearts to say, God, would you show me the areas where I long to be notable? And would you pluck it out? Would you make my greatest desire to be like righteous Lot? Mentioned three times. It's ironic. It's kind of neat, isn't it? Peter, three times the Lord comes to him, Jesus, and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you? Then feed my sheep. And what does Peter say about Lot? He is righteous, he is righteous, he is righteous. And who knows the intricacies of Lot's trials and what is good for him? The Lord knows. And the Lord plucked it out and preserved him. That's the kindness of our God. But what did it say as we approach the next steps here in just a moment? What did it say about Lot? He was troubled. He was tormented. Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. He was tormented, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his, it was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Abraham tried to intercede, but was an insufficient intercessor. Lot was grieved for them, but he was insufficient. But in our hearts, we should pray, Holy Spirit, would you never allow our hearts to grow so hard that we long for wrath upon human beings today that are alive. For we don't want to make disciples of people that we hate. Our world is filled with that right now. But to pray that God would bless them with 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, would bless them with repentance and faith. Not simply the people we see on TV or social media, but the people in our lives that God would use us to see them come to know Jesus Christ. And you know when I'm most passionate about seeing people come to know Christ is when I am most intentionally pursuing Christ. When I'm most intentionally repentant in my marriage and in my life. And that catches attention of people. And it makes my mind intentional as I go about doing errands or whatever it is. The hope that I have and intentionality with our neighbors and other people that God brings into our lives. There's not an accident you're a student today. There's not an accident you live where you live or you do what you do. There's not an accident we're here. We're called to be and make disciples for the glory of God and give them the true hope of true life in Jesus Christ alone. That forgiveness is very real. And true hope and true life is very real and it's found in the Son of God who took on flesh, Jesus Christ. If you'll but turn today and trust Him, you have everlasting life and life abundantly today. Isn't that good news? That's why we gather to sing. That's why we build each other up as we go through our week and we're reminded of what the Lord has accomplished for us and what in His kindness He has set out for us to walk in the good works of being and making followers of Christ. Every one of us has unique careers. Every one of us has unique influences. 
What a privilege to proclaim Christ crucified, our hope of glory. No matter how athletic you are, how musical you are, how gifted you are, whatever your career is, that you're able to say in that context or in your neighborhood or your place of study, Christ crucified, my hope of glory. Isn't that good? Lord, rekindle us. Jerome's got my back no matter what happens in here. The Lord is good and faithful. Let's look at our next steps today. Three additional ones in addition to what the Spirit may have already put upon your heart this morning. By grace through faith in Christ alone, sinners are declared righteous. So as a believer, how does this reality, how does it rekindle your trust and affection for God? This morning, how has the Lord used His Word to, to rekindle your, your true Lord? When even things don't appear as we see to work out the way we long for, how are we rekindled to trust God today? And to walk in the good works He's prepared for us to walk in as believers. Number two, callousness toward the lost, will, it will always strain our prayer. It's easy to get calloused in this culture. It's divided and broken down in every way you can imagine. It's, it's intersectionality. It's being taught. That's not what Scripture teaches. And so we pray that, Lord, would you give us a heart of prayer and burden to see people come to know you and the true hope that's available through Jesus Christ. And so in this way, three components that, that we ask and, and would show up on our calendars this month. Prayer. Prayer for the lost. Number two, hospitality toward the lost. And number three, pursuit of the lost. How will those three make themselves up in the remaining three weeks of the month of February, 2021? If you're married, talk to your spouse about it. If you're a believer and you have a, a roommate who's also a believer, talk to, talk to those you live with about it. If you're single, certainly talk to the Lord and, and, and share that with somebody else for accountability. But ask the Lord to tenderize our hearts through prayer and through intentionality with others this month for the wickedness that will be held accountable before God is real. But the love of God is sufficient and the boldness that He gives us by the Spirit. Number three, is there a but what about in your heart that you need to set before the Lord in prayer this morning? Something that perhaps you've not talked to the Lord about for many years. Is there something you can set before Him? It could be a discontentment of a season. It could be a multitude of things, a, a sin committed against you that you need to just set before the Lord and say, Lord, I had this but what about in my life that I have not talked to you about. And I want to be honest and present that to you right now. I know you're faithful and I know you're enough. I want to lay that at your feet right now. After the service is over, after we sing and our, the song that is selected today is No Greater Aim. What a beautiful, beautiful prayer for us to be able to pray as a church family before we conclude our congregational prayer. But after the service, there'll be leaders up here to be able to pray with you and encourage you and whatever those things are. So what I want to do is I want to give you one minute to be able to just set your heart before the Lord. And then I'll pray for us and we'll stand together and sing as a church family. Okay? You bow your heads. Let's pray.
And Father God, we give you glory today. We thank you for the fact that we have received an inheritance, a salvation in Christ alone. Lord, we know that on our own, we are dead in sin. We come short of your glory. It's because of your great love for us in Christ. We have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Lord, we see the wickedness in the world, and some of us have experienced incredible amounts of wickedness and sin against us. And Lord, we set that before you. We thank you of knowing the truth that of those who committed such things did not come to Christ, they will stand before you and give an account. And your righteousness will prove true as it did for the angels, as it did for Sodom and Gomorrah, as it did for the people in Noah's day. Lord, we're also stirred to know that if those people but will trust Christ, what happened upon the cross was so great that their sin and that evil and that wickedness was nailed to Christ's body upon the tree. And so, Jesus, we thank You for acting in full obedience to the Father. We thank You, Jesus, for fulfilling all the demands of the law that that You love the Lord and You love neighbor perfectly in a way that we do not. And yet this righteousness has been given over to our account. We believe, Jesus, that You defeated death and rose again from the grave. We believe right now You intercede for us in heaven. We believe the Father has sent the Holy Spirit and He indwells us. And the fact that we're burdened and troubled by sin like Lot was shows that You indeed indwell us, Spirit. Help us, God, to be bold, to give our lives to making disciples. Bring people from death to life. We believe You can bring people who are dead in their sin this week to eternal life and even on this day. So God, bring people to believe and give them the courage, Lord, to profess faith in You publicly. Lord, we love You and we thank You for the life that we have. God, help us to be faithful with the tasks You give us this week. Help us to live in a way and long to show that there is no greater aim than knowing you. We ask these things in in Jesus' name. And all God's people said together, Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing, beloved?